Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. How you doing today? Great. A Tony the Tiger in our midst. I love it when Tony shows. Great. Hey, um, if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, we are going to be uh, mostly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to go ahead and turn there this morning. We are actually continuing in our journey uh, through the, um, this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Many of uh, us know it as the Lord's Prayer, but I really think it's more of a, the disciples' prayer because it's the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And so that's where we're going to camp out this morning. Uh, we'll, we'll focus on Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 for a moment, and then we'll jump over into 1 Corinthians 10. But before we do that, I want us to think together about something. Um, You know, one of the things that people say about the low country, and there is some truth to it, is that there are, we basically have two seasons. We have summer and we have winter. And isn't it glorious that you can experience both of those in the same week, you know, here, here in the low country? Um, you know, we just can, and it's a glorious thing. But we actually have a third season in the little country. Anybody know what it is? <laughs> it's actually bug season. You know, we have bug season, and it's just around the corner. And uh, bug season is a beautiful and, and kind of glorious thing. But one of the things that bugs do not know very well is that bugs have an enemy who is stronger and smarter than they are. And that enemy lays awake at night coming up with effective means to destroy little unsuspecting bugs. And I want to introduce you to a couple of those items of destruction uh, of a bug's life and uh, so that you will be aware of those. I have some here in my shopping cart. These are uh, roach motels. It gives off an odor that they say that uh, roaches cannot resist and they just love to, to follow that odor, and, um, you know, it's one of those hotels that you can check in any time you like or check out, but you can never leave. Uh, Roach goes in, he doesn't, he doesn't come back out. Um, there, there's another uh, instrument of destruction for little bugs that was quite creatively crafted, and it involves a big, beautiful light. And I have a small version of one of these. This is kind of like an indoor version. Anybody know what this is? It is the official indoor bug zapper. You are correct. Little unsuspecting bugs see the big beautiful light and they are attracted to it and they just fly towards that light and suddenly they come in contact with those uh, electricity and charged little slats and then you hear the zzzt. It's just a sweet sound. You know, if you've ever been around one of those bugs, those giant bug zappers outdoors, um, in August in the low country, uh, you just hear that melody of zit, 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 zit. They're just, they, they just go off like crazy um, because bugs just, you know, are drawn in. And you would think that some unsuspecting bug would look down into that little tray beneath that light and think, When my friends went before me into this, they ended up down there in the bottom of that tray. But apparently, no, no bug seems bright enough to pick up on 
if you fly into the light, there is destruction. There was what the book thought was a promise of life. It was beautiful to, to the eye, and they just, they just flew in. And these bugs moved into what uh, just became a reality that there is a way that seems right unto a bug, but the end thereof is death. It's just death of a bug. Now, one of the things that, you know, we might think is just dumb bugs. You know, they're, they're, just, they're just so dumb. Only a bug would be that dumb, right? Presidents of nations. Zit. CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Zit. Fabulously wealthy star athletes. Zit. Pastors of churches. Zit. People who attend church every time the doors are open. Zit. See, the truth about us is this zapping deal is no respecter of person. It's not a respecter of political party. It is no respecter of personal status in our culture. It is indiscriminate, this zapping that goes on in our world. I want to show you another instrument of destruction. You know what this is? It's an apple. Now, we don't know for certain from the testimony of Scripture, the apple often gets blamed for this, but we know that in Genesis, the Bible tells us that there was a tree that God planted in the middle of the garden and that the fruit on that tree was forbidden. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, you can go read it later on today, the Bible tells us that the woman that God planted in the garden saw the fruit of the tree and that it was attractive to the eye and it was good for food and would open her mind to wisdom. Zit. Verse 6 goes on to tell us that she gave to her husband and he ate it. Zit. This is the story of human history. And you've got to wonder every time we read about another person who falls into temptation that just destroys their life and wrecks their marriage and tears them away from their home and tears up their family, you just start wondering, why does this happen? Why would we choose to keep on violating our values? Why do we voluntarily give in to what we know is going to be destructive? Why do we fly to the light. Why do intelligent people do dumb, dark actions that destroy ourselves and everything around us? Actions that we know we'll be ashamed of even if nobody else finds out. Well, the Bible tells us that at least a significant part of that, maybe not the whole thing, but at least a big part of that, is we have an enemy who is bigger and stronger than we are. We have a common enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes about that. He tells us that our, our battle, our fight, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and dark forces and spiritual places. And then Paul goes on to write these words, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Friends, what that passage tells us is that you and I are in a battle 
today and every day. We, we are in a spiritual battle, and our enemy, the evil one, who most often in Scripture is referred to with the title of the tempter, that his primary weapon is temptation. That's his primary weapon. And so when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to model their life around prayer, and he gives them this prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, you go to your Father, and one of the things you need to pray is, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say, from the evil one. And friends, this subject matters deeply. It just, it matters. So I want us to be real clear on a couple of things before we take a deeper dive into uh, 1 Corinthians 10. In, in James chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible tells us this about God. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Your Father in heaven is never going to tempt you with anything evil. It's one of the reasons I think that Jesus teaches to pray when you're praying about this to make that declaration lead us God not into temptation it's a declaration in many ways that that's it's the truth about God he will never lead you into temptation his great desire is actually the opposite that you would be delivered that you would be delivered that you would escape the lure of temptation so now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want us to read a passage. The context of this section of Scripture, Paul is writing um, about the, the children of Israel who are walking through the Exodus who stumbled and gave in to different kinds of temptation, and it led to the, their destruction out in the desert of that generation. We're going to start reading in verse 6. Paul says, now these things, those, those destructive things, those temptations, took place... Uh, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them uh, were. As it's written, people sat down they, to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Uh, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age, uh, ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Verse 13, and this is what I want us to focus on today. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Uh, mankind is another way to translate that, but humanity here. No, no temptation has come that is not common. God is faithful. Anybody happy about that? God, that's good news. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want us to think really deeply about that last verse together. It is one of the most misquoted and misused passages of Scripture, verses in the Bible, but it also contains 
some of the greatest truths about how you and I need to, uh, as we pray that prayer, lead us not to temptation. How do we deal with this thing uh, called temptation? There are three observations I want to make real quickly uh, that I see in this verse. It starts off in the first sentence uh, of the verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is my first observation. Expectantly prepare to be tempted. You just need to be prepared. You need to expect temptation to come. And you need, you need to prepare for it like you would a, a, a Category 5 hurricane that they're guaranteeing is coming to Charleston. You need to, you need to expectantly prepare for that so that you won't be caught off guard. So that when you're tempted, you're not surprised by it. You're not given over to disappointment when, you, when, when, you, when you're hit with temptation. See, when Jesus prayed or gave us the prayer and told his followers to pray, uh, lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil, he is not telling us that we need to pray that we would be delivered from the experience of, of temptation. Because you're not going to be delivered from the experience. This verse tells us that temptation is common. Jesus himself was tempted uh, in Luke chapter 4, we, we read about the temptations of Christ, at least some of them. And then that, that section of Scripture ends in verse 13 of Luke 4, saying this, When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Jesus was not just tempted three times. It wasn't a three, you know, three and done kind of thing. The, Satan came back. Now, one of the things that fascinates me is from time to time, I will talk with folks, Christians, who are surprised that they get tempted. Some who are surprised that they still get tempted. They say, look, I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I'm still you know, struggling with temptation. It's part of the human experience. You're going to experience temptation until Jesus comes back and sets us all free from it, or he takes you home to be with him. Those are the, kind of the two ways out of this temptation thing. Nobody is temptation-free. And so it means that your ability to resist temptation is enormously important for you to experience the kind of life that God has planned for you, to be able to identify temptation and then resist it. Some of you will remember some years back, really decades back now, there was a psychological experiment. If you, you know, maybe in college uh, did, did Psych 101, you studied about this. Uh, they would take four or five-year-old kids. They would put them by themselves in a room. And the experimenter would come in with them for a moment and put an M&M on the table. One M&M. And they would talk to that child a little bit. And they'd say, hey, I'm going to leave the room for a minute. And uh, if you don't bother that M&M, when I get back, I'll give, you, I'll give you a little pack of M&M's. But if you bother that M&M, there, there won't be any other M&M's. And so, if you, you know the experiment, you know that there were a group of kids who could not stand the temptation. They had to eat the M&M. And so they didn't get any. Then there were the, the kids who were able to wait. They, they, they could delay gratification. That's kind of what the study was about. Those who, how they would handle this, this temptation. Well, the findings of the study, if you, if you remember, just kind of amazing things. Those, those kids, because they followed him into adulthood, and those who were able at the age of four to resist that temptation, they went on to be more socially 
and relationally competent. They were more decisive. They had a higher level of self-esteem, self-worth. They were able to manage anger problems better. They had a lower rate of delinquency and lower divorce rates than the i got to grab the M&M Now group. There was a, a, a marked difference. So I want to put something else on the table today. Just to remind you as we go about this this experiment. And then I want to ask you this question. What's your M&M? What is the thing that the evil one comes at you with to tempt you, to give in, to yield? For some of you here, it may be the word that is spelled S-A-L-E. And you just cannot pass up a sale. And you think to yourself, it's on sale. I need two of these. You can't resist the temptation. Maybe, maybe your temptation's in a bottle. Destroys lots of people. Maybe, maybe your temptation is a box of Krispy Kremes, the whole box. You know? Maybe, maybe your temptation is an adult site on the internet. Maybe, maybe your temptation is that you get great joy from passing judgment on people who struggle with M&Ms. Whatever their M&M is. What are you most vulnerable to being tempted by? Now let me explain something about the word. Jesus uses the word for temptation. Paul uses the very same word in 1 Corinthians 10 that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 6 verse 13. And we, you know, in our culture today, usually the first thing, if we start talking about temptation, everybody kind of first runs to this thing about sex. Or sometimes we like to, you know, categorize in these kind of trivial categories, putting, you know, temptations in these little kind of trivial boxes. Friends, the Bible never, ever, ever trivializes temptation. It's not just about some fattening little dessert that you can be guilty about. This word temptation has to do with what will tear your soul away from God. What will pull you from God. What is at stake is the health of your soul, of the the center of your life. And see, giving into temptation is basically allowing myself to be torn away from God. And the tempter... He is not stupid. He, he's, he's not dumb. He, he's not going to write a sign over the temptation that says, choose death. Oh, no. It's going to be far more subtle than that. It's not going to be that obvious. It's not going to be something that you know is destructive or something that's just gross to you. See, the, 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 the most dangerous temptation that you may be facing right now is, is going to be more subtle. It may not be a big dramatic one. It may be something more subtle, something to lure you away from intimacy with God. You know, if you look back at what we read a moment ago in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you looked at verse 7, in verse 7, there was the temptation to worship an idol. In verse 8, it was the temptation of sexual immorality. In verse 9, it was the testing of God kind of raising your fist at God saying, if if you don't give me what I want, I'll denounce you. It's that kind of thing. And then verse 10, verse 10, there's this word, and then some grumbled. 
don't grumble. Do you notice that? These things that we think of, these great big temptations, and then lumped right there was grumbling. How many of you have already grumbled today? Maybe not today already, but yesterday. Something didn't go your way, you just grumbled. Grumbled about it. See, you see the purpose of the evil one in temptation is to separate your heart from God. And whatever is most likely to do that is what he's going to use. And grumbling, you read that list that we just went through, grumbling can be just as effective as idolatry or adultery at pulling your heart away from God. Oftentimes, it's those subtle ones that will be more destructive. See, the evil one doesn't just tempt you to do what's wrong. He also tempts you to not do what you know is right, to not go deep with God, to not to spend time with him in prayer. And, and so for you, busyness right now might be the most destructive thing in your life, the greatest temptation, because it's keeping you from a deep love relationship with God. It, it's keeping you from intimacy with him. It's keeping you from walking uh, with the Spirit. Just busyness. You may not have even thought of that as a temptation. You know, for, for some, the deadliest temptation you, you face right now may just simply be a recliner and a television or a, you know, a gaming device. That may be it. That may be what takes time and eats it up and keeps you from time with God. See, the evil one, you know, he doesn't have to use power to destroy you. In fact, he, he can't use power. See, there's a kind of misinformation out there in our culture that, you know, there's this idea in some Eastern religions that there's this yin and yang and that, you know, these two equal opposing forces and balance and all that kind of stuff. Friends, that's hockey puck. God alone is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. The evil one is not. All he has is temptation, and then when you yield to that temptation, he turns and he accuses you. He has accusation. That's the only power he's got over, over you and I. But see, if, if any human soul is going to be destroyed, it's going to come through temptation. And so this fight, this battle against temptation is an, a most important thing. And here's what Satan tries to do. He tries to tell you, no big deal. It's just the way of the world, man. The world's doing it. It's not, not a big deal. But the truth is, it is a big deal. It, it will destroy your life. It will destroy your journey with God. And it happens anytime we give in to temptation. So we need to expect it. And we need to be prepared for it. There's no temptation that's not common. Second thing that I observe in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 13 shows up in the next sentence in that, in that verse. It says, God is faithful. Again, I hope you love that. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And so the second observation that I make from this verse is that God knows your temptation limitation. He knows your limitation. Now, this statement is where so many people misuse this verse. And they will oftentimes say to a person who's in bad pain, who's suffering, well, now the Bible says God's not going to let you suffer beyond that which you can handle. That is not what this verse is about. This verse is about temptation. 
There are people every day, God-fearing, God-loving people who are suffering to the point of death. Please don't use this verse thinking you're going to encourage them because Satan will use it to tempt them to believe that God is not for them. Don't misuse that verse. This is about temptation. And it says that God knows just how much each of us can bear. When I was in my later teens, from 16 up into my, my 20s, um, I was a little bit of a gym rat. I just lived kind of at the gym, loved it. Uh, I worked out with a buddy um, named Tracy Wind, and um, I loved working out with Tracy. And there'd be times he would be spotting me, and I would be, you know, moving the weights, and I would be done, and I would say, I'm putting it down, and Tracy would say, no, you're not. You got two more reps. And I would think, I do not have two more reps. I'm done, Tracy. Shut up. And he'd say, no, we're going to get two more reps. And then I would think really bad thoughts about Tracy. I wouldn't say those, though. But I would find two more reps. It would happen. Tracy knew. Much more so does God know your limitation when it comes to temptation. God knows that. Now, that should encourage you, that God knows you that well. He's looking. He sees. He knows what buttons can lead to your destruction. Your heavenly Father knows how much temptation you can bear. And the promise here is he's not going to let it go beyond what you were able to bear without doing something about it. That's the promise of Scripture. And you should be filled with joy when you think about the temptation that you yield to the most. You should be filled with joy in knowing that it, it, God has seen it and it has, it has passed even through his hands. He, he's allowed it to come. But now here's the sobering side of that. We can never, ever rationalize and say, well, I just couldn't help myself. You know, I just, just had to kind of give in. See, God doesn't leave that excuse open to us either because he's going to provide something. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. He has to. But it requires some level of resistance on our part. See, here's the deal. If you're in Christ, you have the, the, the universe's greatest trainer who is with you all the time, who really does know you and knows your limitations. He, he knows that, how much you can bear. But that means there's no excuse. So if you've been kind of letting yourself off the hook as you've given in to temptation, you know, just saying, I'm so weak, I didn't, you know, didn't have any other option, that's, that stands in opposition to the clear teaching of Scripture. That is not true at, in any way. Your Father knows your temptation limits, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that without doing something, which leads to observation number three. And it comes out of verse 13. It says, but with this temptation, he will also provide. God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Some translations say get through it or bear under it. And so this is the third observation. Knowing your personal limits, God always provides an escape route. Always. Any temptation, every time you're tempted, God provides an escape route. And that should be good news. When you are tempted, God is going to provide a way for you. We sang about it. He's the way maker. That's who our God is. 
Now, in the few moments that remain, I want to give you four habits that if you engage in these habits, it will prepare you, equip you for those temptations that are just common. They're just going to come. You'll, you'll know they're going to come. But there are things you can do to be uh, kind of prepared. So if you want to kind of consider it temptation preparation, storm, storm readiness, so that you will, th these will help you successfully take those ways of escape that God has promised he will provide. Here's the first one. I'll more readily take God's way of escape if I've arranged my life around joy. If I've arranged my life around joy. If there was, if I could only give one word, a one word answer to the question, what is the greatest emotional resource against temptation? It would be the word joy. Many of you know this verse. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says this. The joy of the Lord is what? Our strength. Joy of the Lord is our strength. And what, is, what does that mean? You know, th this is really going to give you kind of your first uh, pathway to see the way of escape is if you've learned to arrange your life around living in the joy uh, of the Lord. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have this uh, authentic, God-honoring joy that, that's the single greatest weapon, I think, uh, against temptation? And now remember, the opposite of that, joylessness, is probably the thing that will make you most vulnerable to yielding to temptation. I love what Dr. Willard said here in his book, Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Friends, I've seen people over the years, people who were at times in leadership in churches, just kind of bail on God because they flew close to some stupid light that, that drew them away. And mostly what happened was month after month and year after year, their lives became filled with duty after duty. Even in the church, it was just about, about doing, you know, your duty. That they couldn't really see how God cared for them. Couldn't really see how the Bible says that God rejoices over them. And they just, they, they, they stepped into this kind of miserable existence. They're, friends, uh, when, if that's your life, fall is inevitable. If your relationship with God is all about duty, then, then you're, you're, you're on the verge. You're, you're just toppling on the edge because our strength, our strength to stand against temptation will lie in the joy that we have in the Lord. I mean, you think, if you would, for just a moment about, about somebody who gives in to, yields to sexual temptation. That's not the big issue in their life. The big issues are deeper. That, that's the, that's the, you know, the iceberg part above the water. What's below the water are things like loneliness and boredom and self-pity and uh, maybe resentment against a spouse. And if all they do is focus on what's going on on the surface and never deal with what's going on that really led them to yield to the temptation, the tempter will win every time. Those things that keep you from joy in the Lord. So, you know, I love what John Piper describes Christianity should be like. Christianity, when it comes to joy, should be like Christian hedonism. Isn't that a great phrase? Christian hedonism. That, that we should live just so 
filled and overwhelmed with joy. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, the starting point for joy in the Lord is the gospel. The good news about Jesus, the good news about what Jesus has done, about the finished work of your salvation that Jesus did on the cross to set you free from the power and penalty of sin. What Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing right now, interceding for you in in the presence of God the Father. And what Jesus has promised to do, and that is to come back and and to, to destroy all of evil and that you would rule and reign with him in his perfect creation as he always intended it to be. That's the gospel that you can take joy in. But there's more. There, there's, there's other aspects of joy that, that God gives to us. Maybe, maybe you enjoy and get joy in his creation. I mean, you need to spend some time in it. Maybe, maybe you enjoy great music, great, great music that makes your heart sing and, and your soul sing, great worship music that draws you to worship God. You need to invest in that. Experience joy. Maybe it's time with certain friends brings you joy maybe some alone time brings you joy maybe maybe you have a good physical challenge and so you go run a marathon or something maybe maybe you need to know that and so maybe when you pray this part of the lord's prayer lead us not into temptation but deliver us maybe part of that prayer should go on to say and deliver us into joy deliver us from the evil one by delivering me into joy and find those things that make you experience the joy of the Lord and live in them and arrange your life around them. And friends, the the enemy's not going to do that. Only you can do that. Only you can arrange your life around it. And you got to be active at it. It's not just going to happen. And if you don't, here's what I'll guarantee you you're doing. If you don't work to live in the joy of the Lord, you have strategically put a big bullseye for the enemy on your chest that says tempt me here just tempt me here so the joy of the lord is your strength that's one way to prepare to receive that way of escape and step into it second way i'll more readily take god's way of escape if i will develop relationships of accountability some accountable relationships see temptation always always involves hiddenness and darkness and I just, I'm going to say this just as directly and straightforwardly as I can. If you think that you're the exception to the rule, if you think that you can handle the tempter and his temptation, if you think that you are kind of have reached above all that, you are deceived. You're just deceived. You have bought a lie. Because every last one of us are not as smart and not as strong as the enemy only God is stronger and if you try to handle temptation on your own you're eventually going to fail every one of us needs somebody at least one somebody just one at least one who knows what your M&M is who knows what the big one is and somebody that you have said to them this is my M&M. This is what my greatest struggle is. This is the way that Satan, if he comes at me with this, I'm going to struggle. You tell them what it is. And you tell them, I want you to regularly ask me about my M&M. 
I want you to ask me how it's going. I want you to feel free to confront me at, at any time if you see me moving towards that. I give you this door. I give you the combination. Open it. You need somebody that when you're tempted, severely tempted, somebody that you can call who will be there for you, who will pray for you. If you've ever been engaged in the recovery movement in any way, uh, those folks are often called sponsor. It's somebody that, somebody in recovery knows they can call any hour of the day, and that person will stop what they're doing to be there for them, to pray for them, even, even go find them if, if, if needs be. Who is that for you? Who, who is that person that you can call in a moment like this? Friends, this, this, this is the tipping point on the difference between pseudo-biblical community and real live biblical community. It's the, it's the tipping point right here. I mean, uh, at church you can have great worship services, you can have all kinds of classes and groups that meet, but still not have functional biblical community. See, in, in pseudo-community, everybody pretends like, I don't have an m M&M problem. You know? Yeah, I, I struggled with that once, but I've grown beyond that. In authentic biblical community, everybody knows that they're just one M&M from a train wreck. Like in Ohio, where there's going to be massive fallout. See, in, in biblical communities, that's, that's what people know and say. They, we all know that there's this little thing inside of us that, that craves that M&M. And we look at each other and say, will you help me? And in biblical functioning communities... That's, that's what we do. We're, we're just a bunch of people with M&M problems. If you look to the person near you on the left, go ahead and do that. And the person near you on the right, there's a person with an M&M problem. And you know, the person that they saw looking at them that person has an imminent problem too. Maybe different, but they still struggle. And in churches where people pretend that they don't have that, it's just death. There, there's not going to be life. But in churches where grace and truth break through, and people are part of little communities, maybe a small group, a support group, or whatever, that, where they can say, you know, I got a problem with this, and I failed yesterday. And have the person on the other side of the room or the other side of the table look you in the eye and cry for you? And stop and pray for you? And hurt for you? Instead of judge you? Friends, that's biblical community. When you, we all recognize that we're creatures that are much smaller and much slower and much weaker than our great enemy, our common enemy. That we all need help from God and help from each other. Friends, that was God's beautiful plan for the church. That we would be people like this. See, there's incredible power in that kind of biblical community. Look at this passage in James chapter 5. It says this, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. There is nothing like that kind of biblical community to bring about the, hu the healing of the human soul. 
Nothing like that kind of community where acceptance takes place in spite of our struggles to heal the human soul. This is God's pathway for the healing of tortured souls. Now, just a quick word about confession. The Bible calls God's people to confess our sin, to confess our sin condition and individual sins, to confess them to God. And we, we confession to God is crying out in agreement. It's just crying out in agreement. I agree with you, God, that what I've done is sin. It separates me from you. It destroys my soul. It pulls me farther away from you. I, I, I confess my, my sin to God in agreement. I agree with him. But James 5 tells me that when I confess to another person, that what's going on there is it's a cry for attachment. It's a cry for deep community, a connection to another person because we need it. God designed us for it and be able to look somebody in the eye and say, this is the truth about me and have them look back in your eyes and accept you anyway. There's nothing greater than that on this earth that brings about human healing from another human relationship than that kind of acceptance that draws us towards one another. It's the greatest source of soul healing from one human being to another. And so when you want an M&M, your M&M really badly, who can you call? Who can you call right now? And if somebody's name doesn't come to mind pretty quickly, you need to be making part of that prayer, lead us not in temptation but deliver us from, from evil. You need to make part of that prayer and God give me one of these people who I can call in this moment, somebody with skin on, who will be this for me, who will accept me in my struggle, who won't want me to stay there and, and, and just celebrate my struggle, who will want me to come out of it, but will accept me in the middle of my struggle. Friends, that is fundamental if you want to really take those ways of escape that God has planned for you. Arrange your life around joy. Have some accountable relationships, at least one. Accountability gets a bad rap in the church these days. Some people think accountability is, I'm going to know this book and all the sins in it, and when I see you cross the line on one of them, I'm going to thump you in your watermelon head. That is not biblical accountability. Biblical accountability says, it tears at my soul. It tears at my soul when your soul is being destroyed by the enemy. And I'm not going to stand idly by and just watch. I'm going to love you, man. I'm going to love you, sister. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to cave in. I'm going to be with you in this. That's what it looks like. Accountability. A third way that I'll more readily take God's way of escape is if I've immersed my life in God's word. If I've just immersed my life in God's word. And I so deeply yearn for everyone who calls River Bluff my church to have our minds and our hearts just washed with the word of God. I'm going to do everything I can to encourage that, to celebrate it, to, to drive that, that. Not so we would be a bunch of Bible trivia champions, you know. I, I'm not, not, not so we could just know Bible trivia or be the first one to quote a passage of scripture. Not, not so we could do that, but so that our lives will be transformed. That's what the Bible says God's word will do so that our lives will be transformed so much that we will be able to stand against temptation because we'll be prepared for it. We'll, we'll see it coming. 
And see, here's the, here's the, the big deal about how, how to avoid eating the stuff that's not good for you, your M&M, is you need to be eating something better. Something better. And feasting on God's word is better for you. It's just so much better. You know, Luke chapter 4, we talked about it a, a little bit. Uh, again, I, I encourage you to go home and read this uh, when you get home later today and, and reflect on it some. The tempter comes to Jesus at, at kind of the pivotal point in his life. He has just heard God the Father's voice say publicly, you are my beloved son. I am well pleased in you. He, he's heard that publicly. And, and, and then the, the tempter, the, the, the Bible says that the, the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was there 40 days and he was being tempted by the enemy. The same enemy that tempts you and I. And Jesus is doing battle like we have to do battle. He's tempted three times in that moment. Turn bread into stone. You know, you don't have to be hungry out here. You just turn it into stone. Take the shortcut to meet your needs. Or how, how about do this, Jesus? How about let's go into the center of the city at the temple. You jumped off the highest part of it. It'll be spectacular. God will save you. Everybody will love you. It'll be great. Or why don't you do this, Jesus? Why don't you just bow down and worship me? And I'll, go ahead, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what you're here to do anyway. Let's take the shortcut. You won't have to suffer mission complete. And you know what Jesus answers with three times? It is written. It is written. It is written. And then Jesus quotes scripture back to Satan about each of these temptations. He, he knew God's word. He was, he was absorbed in it. Jesus says, why would I choose that when God's word is so much better for me? Why would I, I want to take that, that M&M when the word of God is so much more filling in my life? Where, where are you more, most likely to be tempted? Where, where is that for you? I've shared publicly before that one of the areas of weakness that really plagued my life was anger. I was tempted to give in to to anger for so long and one of the things I would try to do was immerse my mind with passages of scripture like Ephesians 4.32 that, that tells us to be kind to one another and tender hearted and forgiving one another just as Christ God in Christ has forgiven me and I would try to saturate my mind and then put it into practice I don't know what yours is maybe, maybe you struggle with anger today or, or maybe, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's a lack of trust. And maybe you need to go to a passage like Joshua 1.9. And you need to hear the word of the Lord saying to you, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't get discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you everywhere you go. So that when fear comes, you can just say to yourself, God is with me. I don't have to be afraid. Maybe your deal is ingratitude. Maybe you have an ungrateful spirit that was already grumbling this morning. Maybe, maybe you need to think about God's word and meditate on it. It tells us in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. Everything. Don't grumble. In everything give thanks. It's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks, give thanks, and, and practice it. Make a list of things that you can be thankful for. And while you're doing that, while you're letting God's word wash you, you pray to God. You, you ask God, Father in heaven, don't lead me into the temptation, but deliver me through the power of your word. Number four, last kind of habit that you can engage that 
it will help you more readily take the way of escape when God brings it, is to grow to know the Holy Spirit. Grow to know the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. You won't give in to temptation if you're walking by the Spirit. Friends, most of you pray to God the Father. Most of you often pray to Jesus for help and those kinds of things. But I want to encourage you, if you don't, to pray to the third member of the Trinity too. Grow to know the Holy Spirit. He is in you. He is with you. He's, he's your comforter and your guide. And he wants to direct you away from temptation. He's inside you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you need to know the presence of the Holy Spirit is with you. Every day is an opportunity for that, to walk by the Spirit. He will help you see that way of escape. He will guide you. That's part of the journey that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would take you on. He will guide you to that way of escape. One of the things that I know is true, because God's Word says it's true, is when this room, when we gather, every person in here wrestles with temptation of some kind. And I don't know what you're wrestling with right now. And I don't know how deep your struggle is. But I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that little bug zapper. And what happens when you allow yourself to be lured into that kind of dark light. That light that leads to destruction. That light that when you're tempted will tear your soul away from God. That temptation that will cause you to violate your integrity, that could destroy your marriage and wreck your family, that so often will create guilt and despair, pull you away from worshiping the God who loves you so, cause you to hide from other people because of shame, lead you into hypocrisy and, and even deeper deception. Friends, it's just horrible. And some of you may be flying towards that light at mock speed. And you need to hear the voice of God say to you, watch out. There, there's a warning there, don't, don't do it. See, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle but he will send a way of escape but you got to take the way man you got you got to take the way M maybe you showed up today and you were deeply discouraged because you've been in that cycle of temptation and yielding and shame and you need to break free and maybe what you needed to hear today is God knows God sees that in you and he wants to pull you out and set you free. He promises he will show you that way of escape if you will but look for it. And maybe, maybe you're wondering right now, you maybe be thinking, is there enough grace for somebody like me who's been stuck there for decades? And the answer is, of course. God's grace is sufficient even for you. No matter how long you've been stuck there, and you just need to go to him and pray. God really wants to help. See, the truth about Jesus is he's able to push back that darkness 
so that you can see his marvelous light and be drawn to that light. His light is brighter. His light is more beautiful. His light will fill your life with good things. He can drive that darkness away. But you got to cry out to Jesus. He can calm that, that raging storm in your soul when you give in to temptation or battered by shame. He can calm that. But you've got you've to cry out to Jesus. So let's do that now together. Let's pray. Jesus, we come in this moment in your name. We come giving thanks because of the truth of your word that tells us that we are not in this alone, this fight alone, that you are with us to deliver us. Jesus, we trust your word that tells us when we pray to pray to a God who will not lead us into temptation. He won't lead us that way, but will deliver us. So we come to you, God, as our deliverer, trusting in your word that tells us that you will always, always provide a way of escape, that you are faithful to do that. And so we come. Maybe we come with hearts that are broken over having yielded so often to temptation, but today... Your promise is deliverance. You will deliver us. So we come. And we come to you, Jesus, trusting that you can can drive all that darkness away. That the light of your life is more beautiful. It's more powerful. It conquers our sin and our sorrow and our suffering. And we can come to you in it. So in these moments, Jesus, as we close this service worshiping you, we come, Lord, thankful. That's who you are. Thanking you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.